Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we are going to talk to a TPM alum, actually, uh, Greg Sargent, who has a new book out called An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. It seems particularly relevant now that we're coming off the 2018 midterm elections. I think the results are broadly in line with with what I think we expected, what a lot of us uh, hoped for. It now seems like the uh, obviously the the Senate remained in will remain in Republican hands and it's still up in the air now about uh, you know how how much it'll be in in their hands. It's interesting thinking about it kind of a week later because the night of there was sort of a lot of panic in the moment. You know, James Carville was saying this is not a wave. Van Jones went on CNN being like it's heartbreaking. It was yeah, sort of like was, in the moment was... there was a lot of stress and tension, and maybe that's natural. But it was in hindsight, it seems like a great night for Democrats. Yeah, no, I mean it's 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 a it's a funny thing because I'll tell you there was and I'm and I'm curious what your sense, David, is from from i don't know if you in your in your earlier stint at tpm did one tpm election or two tpm elections it was two i was an intern in the 2010 midterms and then i was here for the 2012 presidential right okay so i'd be be curious to get your sense of of the the two i mean it is funny how the how the psychology of these things works because i do know that there i mean (laughs) i was i was uh, you know, Nate Silver's operation, 538, had a a kind of a real-time... Uh, uh, it's kind of their own predictor. New York Times needle. I, exactly. They had like their own needle, basically. Right. And it's fun. I think they changed it mid-evening hmm. because it was too reactive. Because, you know, if you take one race right. and you extrapolate it across the whole country, whatever. But here's the thing. In that short period of time... There was, it went, that number went from high 80s and it went all the way down to 39% chance of the Democrats taking the House. And I think what happened is uh, maybe someone will will write in and, and, and remind me of the details, but I think what happened is... About an hour in, they stepped in and say, "Yeah, this is too reactive. It's there, there's like no data." But I mean, I'll tell you, th- there was that, and I kind of didn't get it. I was like, "But Nate's the master, right?" And so I yeah. had like a moment where I was like, "This was probably before California came in." Oh, and wait, stuff like that. wait. Yeah. This was like in the. This was probably within an hour or so of the first polls closing, like in Kentucky sure. and Indiana. So it was really early. Right. Um, so it was like Amy McGrath is trailing. It, and, well, it was yeah. Amy McGrath. It was, I, I suspect what may have happened is that um, the Indiana race, I mean, even, I mean, obviously Joe Donnelly still lost, but his loss is like a lot of these other races. It's not as, uh, you know, he wasn't blown out of the water quite as much as it seemed like on election day. Right. But I assume they were inferring from that. So I had a moment where I was like, man, I have, I have watched this movie before. I, <laughs> you know, this, what is happening here? Because yeah. I, I, I remember, I mean, everybody remembers those moments in 2016 where you're like, okay, man, he won Florida. That's rough. Obviously, Hillary's still going to win, but... It's going to be close. Yeah, it's going to be close. Yeah. And then you're sort of, and you see that needle just like, and when it goes, it goes, you know, <laughs> yeah. kind of like it just dead. And you're like, wait, right. can it come back? And you're like, no, it can't come back. So, um, yeah, but it is, it is, it is 
striking how you had those early things, and uh, uh, Amy McGrath obviously ended up losing. That's in Kentucky. I can't remember what which city that if if it's around Lex. I can't remember. In any case, it is striking because even over the course of the evening, a lot of the outlines were pretty clear. It was clear by the end of the evening that Scott Walker had lost. Yeah. Um, and obviously the other pickups, it was it was pretty clear that uh, the Democrats would do pretty... There's, there's something about the psychology there that is more than... It's more than just what numbers came in first or something beyond that. Yeah. What was your what was your sense? You since we were I think both watching it in real time. Yeah, you know, I think on the on the earlier side it was partly just the cable news commentary inundating you that kind of made you think, oh, okay, like am I are my assumptions wrong about this? But I think, you know, cable news has a way of just kind of reporting on the most minute returns immediately yeah. and kind of extrapolating some grand conclusion from it yeah so no, it's kind of like one percent is reporting in indiana donnelly's going down and all of a sudden <laughs> they sort of momentum is over trump trumpism wins and so right. yeah it just took a while to kind of for everything to coalesce yeah no i it, it it's it is striking because you're right there was i remember that thing uh van jones who obviously van jones is a uh progressive activist he has various gigs on 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 cnn uh, you know, all around awesome guy, a, a bit of a misfire, uh, you know, punditry right. wise that night, but it was striking. I remember there was that moment where he was like, it's heartbreaking. How do you come back from it? Yeah. And, and I, rem- I, I remember, cause you know, I, I always like to, and I, you know, I've written about this at different points. I like to remain optimistic as a general kind of mm-hmm. ethic, not just a sort of a predictive matter. And I remember watching that, and I was like, "Am I am I fooling myself here?" Because <laughs> like, because you know, at a certain point, the the Nate Silver, uh, you know, needle started picking back up. And and the thing was, is 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 if if you were watching it all closely, you knew that. Um, the, the the big gains for the Democrats probably going to come in the industrial Midwest and out on the West Coast. Yep. Um, and so I I definitely had moments when I was like, is, is you know, because you never want to be the like, oh, those people are wrong. It's going to go awesome, man. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. It's, it's you, know, you kind of you sort of doubt yourself, but uh, but yeah, and even and even how the next day, everybody knew it was. It was like BS when Trump was saying it was an amazing victory. Right. But people were kind of still saying like, well, it wasn't an amazing victory, but like he did, you know, there's no denying that he really kind of, you know, killed it for for uh, uh, Senate Republicans. Right. Which, which it does seem like there's some truth in that. I mean, look, they uh, Democrats lost in, in North Dakota, uh, in Indiana, in Missouri. Missouri. Those were each, you know, each... Um, I think the biggest surprise was Donnelly. I think people thought Donnelly was 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 probably going to pull it out, and obviously we still don't know uh, uh, what's going on in Florida. I mean, a big thing was I think a big part of that was people were just assuming that that uh, Gillum was going to win. That was and remains the polls a big seemed surprise. The polls seemed to be pretty much in agreement that he was up, right? Yeah, I, I, th- I like I'm not even. I'm not totally sure there was even a single marquee poll that had DeSantis ahead the entire time. It, right. did, it did close a little at the end. 
Um, and and th- who would have who would have thought on the week that we celebrate TPM's 18th birthday? Shout out to you! Yeah, here yeah. we are, another Florida recount. Yeah, another Florida recount. Just getting uh, just getting underway. So, what is your? How was it? How was this one? How did it compare to like the 2010? Uh, election night in 2012. I mean, obviously, two very different elections. Yeah, I think elections, in 2010, but... what I remember is just leading up to it, so many crazy ads. I mean, it was kind of the right. year of the crazy ad. It was yeah. like the Sharon Angle demon yeah. sheep. It was Aqua Buddha, right? Wasn't it okay, Rand wait, Paul? Was it, and, um, was it, wait, was it, okay. Wait, was it, was, was she demon sheep? Or was I can't there rem- someone? I, no, no, it was, it was Carly. Oh, it was Carly, Carly Fiorina. Fiorina okay. was Demon yeah, Sheep. Right. Um, that was a Rachel, Rachel Slashda and uh, Exactly, pickup. a classic, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember, like, was it Joe Manchin was shooting the cap-and-trade bill? It was just kind of all a lot of... A lot of crazy stuff. ads, yeah, lot of, and there and was then, the whole chicken barter for health care, right, right. which wasn't an ad, I guess, yeah. but sort of like a and gaffe. I think this year felt different partly because we have Trump, and Trump just takes up all of the oxygen yeah. around him. No, that's really true. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, it's hard, because like, you know... It's hard to get too focused on or bent out of shape like a crazy ad by some right. you know representative out somewhere. This was Christine O'Donnell in 2010. I'm not a oh, witch. The I witch mean, there was thing. like so many oh, classic. Yeah. No, that was even even for the. But the, you know that also shows that um, that that shows you the prehistory of Trumpism. Yeah, the Trumpism was there. It was knocking. It was, kind it was, of. Yeah, it was still a. A sort of a counter movement within the Republican Party, and it was Trump that sort of took all that stuff and made it mainstream. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so now that now that we have the uh, the 2018 midterm, I was going to say behind us, not quite behind us. It's mostly behind <laughs> mostly, us. Yeah. We're in the we're in the final the final stages of the uh, 2018 midterm. We're going to talk about this book by uh, one time TPMer uh, Greg Sargent. As I said before, it's called "An Uncivil War: Taking Back Our Democracy." In an age of Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics, obviously this was written before the midterm, but sort of you know seeing it in the seeing it out there on the horizon and having some idea of how it might uh, how it might play out. And one of the things Greg talks about in this piece is how the Democratic Party deals with what what is really sort of like the principal challenge for Democrats in politics today, which is how do you combat a Republican Party that increasingly thinks in terms of total victories and total defeats, a kind of a scorched earth politics, while at the same time, Democrats believe in a, in a different kind of politics. So like, you know, it, it was Republicans threatened to run the country into a, a debt default. Uh, a couple years back as a kind of a black to, you know, to blackmail President Obama. Um, Democrats are invested in institutions, democratic institutions. So their ability to fight battles by by destroying or undermining democratic institutions is inherently less than Republicans. So how do you how do you um, how do you square that circle and how do Democrats uh, preserve their not just preserve their values because that's sort of like you know holding your nose you're not going to kind of let things get ugly it's beyond that it's it's what is your ne- what is your end product do you end up with a a 
a government where you are in control, but you've sort of you have a sort of a post democratic uh, destroyed state or or not? Anyway, so we're going to talk to Greg in a moment. Before that, I want to remind you that. The Josh Marshall Podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Iced Coffee. I was going to tell the Grady's, so here, here's the thing. Grady's is great and always fresh and always awesome. It's it's chilled and all this kind of good stuff. This Grady's ad copy <laughs> is getting a little stale. So I'm going to talk to the Grady's guys about it because we want to get some new, uh, you know, season-appropriate yeah. uh, 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 Grady's ad copy. Well, let's just run through this. You know, if do you want in on New York City's favorite cold brew? Of course you do. Yes. Head to Grady'sColdBrew.com for free shipping on all their greatest hits. Grady's famous coffee concentrate is cold brewed, delivering the strongest, smoothest, most refreshing iced coffee on the market. Using a special blend of Indonesian Indonesian and Ethiopian beans and chicory imported from France. Grady's has a touch of natural sweetness without any sugar. Grady's is independently owned and operated and has been brewing in New York City since 2011. You know, speaking of this, Grady's did not need a big tax giveaway to do the right thing yeah, and set go. up shop here in New York City. That's right. Which small, more we can say for some other that's true. big companies. It's Small Business Saturdays coming up too, so. I didn't know that. After uh, Black Friday's oh, okay. Small Business Saturday. We should, you know, we should. Be we a should, good time to pick up some Grady's for your loved ones. Also a good time to pick up some like TPM t-shirts and there merchandise. You go. But yeah, t- totally for Grady's. Okay, so they have been brewing here in New York City since 2011 with no like, no corporate welfare. No helipad. No helipad. <laughs> there might be a helipad. I don't know. There might be. A, I doubt there's a helipad. But anyway, if you're ready to give it a swirl, get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. So let's talk to Greg Sargent. So, Greg, uh, glad to have you on the Josh Marshall podcast. Thanks for coming on. Um, what's up? How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Josh? It's been a while. It has been a while. Well, we were just discussing off air that um, I guess it's almost, it seems, it's crazy to think, I guess it's almost 10 years ago, but you uh, once worked at TPM, and, and I, I like to think um, sort of, uh, obviously you had a, a, a long history before TPM, but but developed some of what you now do and have done for many years at the Washington Post uh, with us and our team. So you're you're you are a a treasured uh, a TPM elder, I guess I'd put it. And I say elder, oh, but well, even about the young people. So just to be clear, that's that's a that's a great honor. And and you know, I actually did learn a lot of the stuff that I'm I'm doing now from you guys, and and even from before I worked there, I was reading you and learning um, because you pioneered a lot of this stuff and. And I, I'm pretty glad that I was able to bring it over to the Washington Post. But I'll tell you one thing. I was really flashing back to the TPM days during this midterm because when I was there, it was the 2006 election. Right. Uh, that was that was um, and that was, uh, you know, that was a big election also. And I remember working in the old 28th Street office. Yep. Um, yep. And following those returns as they came in, and and that was, uh, you know, I'm sure it, it, it's a bit of a different operation then than it is now. But it, I was just really having some fond memories of it as the returns came in this time. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, it's it's it's. Uh, I was telling someone yesterday that I have now uh, experienced uh, five or six elections with big rooms of young people. 
because <laughs> I, you know, it's 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 become more exaggerated over time. But you know, I'm I'm considerably older than than most of the people who work for TPM, um, and it's always just an interesting prism to see it through, um, and a and yeah, a and, sure. a and a fun prism, and and all that all that good stuff. But let's but you have a book out, and we, and I want to talk about your book. So let let's start with the short version of what is this book about? Okay, well, the reason I wrote this is I really wanted to try to capture what I consider to be a, a big disconnect at the core of everything right now. And, and that disconnect is this. Um, it took this figure like Trump, who's just so menacingly hostile to democracy in every way, to kind of get everyone's attention riveted on the state of our political system. But at the same time, a lot of the problems with it long predate Trump and are going to outlast him. And so what I wanted to argue uh, is that we really sort of have to capture this new pro-democracy energy and spirit that is, is out there now and really try to sustain it um, after Trump's gone. When he's no longer around to galvanize it for us, we really have to keep focused on improving democracy wherever possible. And and so I argue for a, a bit of a bigger picture look at all this stuff in hopes of that uh, people don't just sort of, you know, stray away and forget about everything once once the Trump presidency is over. Um, you know, presuming that happens, I, I sure hope it happens sooner rather than later. Right. So but that was the essence of it. So tell us now, and and these are some of these things are things you and I and you and your readers have talked about for a long time. But give us a few of the big themes or trends that Trump made visible or made visible that that no one could ignore them but that predate him significantly what are what are a few of those what are the big ones well you guys have been doing some great work on this too with your democracy series um so you know one obvious one is is voter suppression and and you know fake claims of voter fraud a lot of this stuff was a little bit under the radar in in the old days but it's been going on for many years as you know um, and have tracked yourself in various ways. But when Trump came along, all of a sudden the president, you know, the candidate for president of the United States was visibly and, and, and in the most high-profile way possible telling his supporters that the election's outcome will be illegitimate unless he wins. And so that was the most souped-up and, and, and hyperbolic and inflated and grotesque possible way you could imagine a presidential candidate talking about voter fraud. So that's one example of him doing that. Another is the media, right? You know, the conservative movement has uh, has spent decades trying to delegitimize the mainstream press in the minds of conservative and Republican voters. Um, but they're, they had sort of various euphemistic ways of doing it, whereas Trump kind of came out and just sort of said that the entire news media is fundamentally illegitimate. Right, institutionally illegitimate. It doesn't even have a real institutional, legitimate institutional role in our democracy. So there's another example of him just taking this thing that Republicans did in a, you know, quote unquote, more subtle way, and just turning it into something hyper grotesque and crazy. Those are two, you know, uh, of the biggest examples that I cover in the book on on uh, on, on what you're talking about. And you talk about, I think, I think I have the the phrase used right, the hardball gap. So yeah. what is the hardball gap? Okay, so um, so the best terminology I've come up with to describe, you know, something that 
all of us wrestle with daily, which is this enormous asymmetry between the way Republicans do politics and legislative battles and the way Democrats do politics and legislative battles, um, is asymmetric constitutional hardball, which is a term coined by a couple law professors who took a really serious and comprehensive look. What they do is they look at what's happened in our politics from Gingrich onwards, and I think that's a good starting point because Gingrich really kind of initiated what we all kind of think of as this new phase of, of really full-blown scorched-earth national political strategies. Um, and they conclude, after a careful look at the last few decades, that both sides have played their uh, versions of hardball, um, which is usually described as... Um, essentially pushing the procedural or political envelope in ways that violate conventional understandings of what's acceptable and, and, and normal in politics. And Republicans have just taken that and pushed it much further in many, in many more different ways than Democrats have. And it's it, it, essentially the way, best way to think about the asymmetry of it is that both parties will do certain things, right? Like, both parties have expanded the executive power. Obama expanded it in certain ways. Um, Bush did, um, and Trump is. But there are certain things that Democrats won't do that Republicans will do. For example, voter suppression, um, a level of hyper-partisan gerrymandering that I don't think Democrats have ever really quite reached with the same kind of concerted intensity that Republicans have. Uh, government shutdowns and debt ceiling brinkmanships. That, that's the best way to understand the hardball gap. There are certain destructive tactics that Republicans will use because on some fundamental level they don't really care if the government burns down, um, that Democrats won't. And, and that's really the asymmetric, uh, that's really the hardball gap right there in, in, this, in a nutshell. Let me ask you a question, and this is, there's, there's the hardball gap, which, if I'm understanding how you characterize this, is basically, you know, kind of what we now call in the Trump era, aggressive and consistent norm busting to gain political advantage over time. Um, and, but there's something that is closely related to that, but a little different, and that is... That is just a, a both a rhetorical and a practical approach to politics that Democrats often, you know, they, Democrats have this internal dialogue with themselves. We're not tough enough. You know, our, our elected officials aren't tough enough. All this kind of stuff we don't like, you know, we don't talk to all this kind of stuff. I think anybody who's who thinks a lot about politics is, and is a Democrat, whether you agree with that diagnosis or not, knows that conversation. And one of the things, and, and basically I agree with that. I agree with the diagnosis, um, and I've written about it. But one of the things that I think is not appreciated enough is that there is this uh, trend, and a lot of you know political scientists and stuff, uh, and another duo whose names I can't remember, there's actually a really good book about it. The Republican Party has become much more authoritarian over the last couple decades, and basically authoritarianism is about power and the exercise of dominance. And so it's not just that our politicians are wusses, Democrats, 
it's that there is a there is a basic cultural difference between the two factions in American society. And by and large, Democrats don't want to be authoritarians. Right. I I think it is an important distinction for sure. So how do you how do you where do you go with that, though? How do you but still you want to win elections. So what's your how do you how do you approach that? Well, so I think it's worth, you know, taking a look at a specific example of what you're talking about. Like, so Republicans scream and yell about how Democrats passed Obamacare, right? But, and it's true that they played some hardball to get it through the Senate. But if you think about it, what what they actually did was a very careful escalation after a genuine effort to try and find consensus, right? So... You know, they really reached out to a lot of those uh, centrist Republican senators, uh, and and a number of us, you and I, and and the whole liberal blogosphere was screaming about it that you know you're getting taken. Don't follow these guys. They're they're never going to do anything. They're never going to make a deal with you. And, and and so after that failure to to make a deal, they they used the reconciliation process to kind of punch it through the Senate. Right. That to me seems like a non-authoritarian exercise of. Of, of constitutional hardball. Now, contrast that with voter suppression, right? Voter suppression is what you're talking about. It's an exercise of power and dominance that is, is fundamentally um, justified by, on some level, seeing the other side as politically illegitimate. Otherwise, there's not really a justification for it. Well, I mean, what, 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 what moral justification could there be for targeted, for for um for you know elected officials to use their power to game the rules to make it harder for targeted constituencies to vote that's an authoritarian exercise and right i mean don't you think that that's a good example of it oh yeah no absolutely and i mean the thing and the other th- examples that come to mind to me in some ways are almost the archetypal ones are the you know the the debt ceiling shutdown that kind of stuff right. where you really are you know, kind of holding the state hostage to to force your way. So what do Democrats do about that? Well, so here's the trouble, right? I I think we, as you say, you know, we're not going to do that stuff. There's really no scenario I can envision under which mainstream Democrats or even the most hardball demanding progressive, um, you know, uh, you have this kind of... um, trend on the left of really kind of cold-eyed about power leftists who are trying to say to Democrats, you really got to, to really see what you're up against and, and start using some of these tactics. But even they, I don't think, would be okay with active efforts by a, a blue state legislature to suppress the vote of working class whites. Do you? I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to see that, that that something like that could be done. And now Democrats have a long history of gerrymandering, as you know. But I think at this point, most of us, having seen the last decade of of, of what it can really do, would probably not be okay with a Democratic legislature doing a gerrymander like the ones we've seen in in places like Pennsylvania and and, and, uh, and Michigan, right? So uh, what I argue in the book is that we have to try to find an equilibrium where we do the type of escalation that to close the hardball gap that is consistent with our values, 
while also moving to try and take off the table entirely the places where we would never really dream of going where Republicans go. Does that make sense? In other words, we want to disarm things like gerrymandering and voter suppression as tactics for both sides, while potentially escalating in a manner similar to how Democrats have in the past on things like Obamacare. It, it's, the, the big trouble is that it's a, there's no real fixed formula that will, can ever be worked out that I, I think you can apply um, to every situation. And so this is going to be kind of a case-by-case thing where we try to develop this uh, formula over time, kind of evaluating each situation as it comes along. But I think we do want to say clearly that certain stuff would obviously be off limits for us, even if they do it. Right. Well, it seems to me that one of the one of the key things here is that, you know, politics is all about building a society, a a a politics, a state um, that that fits with a certain set of values, it, regardless of what's, uh, you know, that applies to everybody. And I think everybody would basically agree with that. And the, the key, though, is that. Broadly speaking, Democrats' um, system of values is one that embraces a more open society, more kind of rule of law, more kind of uh, uh, norms, blah, 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 blah. Republicans increasingly are, you know, more in an authoritarian direction. And so your, your strategies, your tactics... Basically, if you have, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of militaristic political tactics versus ones that are more focused on rulemaking and consensus, that's a bit of, you know, that's a bit of an asymmetric battle. And yet you can't or you don't want to um, change what it is you're actually working for. And and so it's that basic uh it, it it's the, it's that basic tension that i think democrats uh will always wrestle with but there are there are ways to you know you can you can you can fight really hard and also within the within the within the scope of a certain set of values right i i think that's a really good way to put it i mean the the, the trouble the, there is a fundamental asymmetry which will never go away which is what i think you're saying and and that's why what I argue for is trying to move the things that they want to turn into areas of contestation into a place of neutrality, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So so something like voter suppression, you know, I I, I talk I, I I float some ideas that I, I've talked to extensively uh, uh, Rick Hasen about. You know Rick, he's, yep, uh, he yep. writes for you guys and yep. he's a terrific thinker on this stuff and everybody should know him. Um, and so he, he has a sort of fascinating riff on this. He says, you know, okay, they want voter ID. We want to make it easy, as easy to vote as possible. Now, Rick, of course, would say voter ID is, is, is a horrible tactic, and, and he does say that, and he even says some fascinating stuff to me about how he thinks we're actually backsliding even more right now, um, um, that, that voting access is actually getting worse uh, rather than better. Um, but he says, look, 
we want to disarm this as a tactic. We want to remove this from the air, from from the arena of contestation. So, why don't we suggest a deal in which, fine, you say you you say you think voter fraud is a problem. Okay, we'll create a a voter ID system, provided that it's a hundred percent not disenfranchising in any way that and it can be designed that way. And in exchange, you give us uh, maximal voting access, whatever you're comfortable with. And so that type of thing, while it sort of seems, you know, unlikely to happen anytime soon, is at least a way to think about how you might take something like the voting access wars uh, off the table uh, as an area of contestation. And I think that's really our only hope of dealing with what you're talking about, this fundamental asymmetry between the party that believes in institutional solutions and the party that fundamentally doesn't right? right i mean it sees it all as power politics i mean one one thing that we've seen a lot of and i think it i think i don't remember which states it was on the it was literally on the ballot in a, in in a number of states this cycle and i think in most cases one was what they call avr automatic voter registration yeah which yes. you know a huge amount of um of what we deal with is you know the the elective voter <laughs> registration system itself and there's just no reason why Everybody can't be automatically registered, and and that it doesn't it doesn't right. take the issue. It certainly doesn't take the voter ID issue off the table, but it 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 solves a lot of the problems. And and that I mean, to your point, you know, with with voter ID, um, there's as you suggest, I I think there's very little shot at good faith compromise because the point is not it it is it is a non good faith effort in the first place so but so but but to the point you're making it would seem to me that you know you could if if democrats get in control of a major state what you could do is say like you know all right and it's one where there's all all you know already voter id you could say okay we're doing automatic voter registration and we will the state will create a voter id for every registered voter and we right. will send I it out. That, I think that makes sense. Once you know, uh, once a cycle, or you know, you can hold. You know, basically, and and that's a case where, um, it wouldn't be a compromise per se. I mean, it's sort of an implicit compromise, since I, most of us on this side of the argument don't really think there's any need for for voter IDs in the first place. Um, but you could basically, uh, you know, create create a new system that would be much harder to argue out of because as 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 we all know one of the really tough things about the voter id debate is that it does seem intuitively reasonable to most people right it does um, it absolutely does yeah so that's uh, okay so that's 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 let me, that is what are other examples of ways that democrats can uh you know when they get into power, force through in the way you do, you pass laws, you have you have governors who don't veto your laws or, you know, presidents, depending on what level uh, of government you're talking about, can push through structural reforms that are game changing. Well, let me just say one quick thing about AVR first and, and before getting to that, because I think you get you got to an important point there. The other thing about automatic voter registration that I think people should understand is that there's no reason to see it as a partisan solution, right? Um, 
automatic voter registration, which which registers anybody who comes in contact with with a state agency, it can be structured different ways, right? That the Republicans should see that as something that can benefit them too. I mean, if there's if there's one thing that the Trump uh, election, the election of Trump taught us, you'd think is that there's this untapped pool of Republican voters out there. I mean, isn't that the basic analysis that everyone has arrived at? That Trump figured out how to tap a kind of disaffected white voter, uh, blue collar, maybe poor. Um, disaffected for other reasons uh, from the two-party system and bring them into the process, you'd think if there's this pool of voters out there, something like automatic voters, voter registration would allow Republicans to in- intensely target their people, too. Now, one last point about AVR, because because I think it's important. In the book, I, I talked to organizers and, and on the ground who have who have, who who, want, who really think it could be a transformative thing. And the reason they think it's transformative or potentially transformative, is that currently when a party targets voters, it has to find them and register them. And that uses up tremendous resources. I have, like, actual statistics on this. Um, but if, if voters are automatically registered, what happens is they're already on lists. And that, so they can be targeted at the outset by parties and repeatedly and intensively urged to go to the polls and that repeated intensive contact is what ends up potentially getting non-voters into the system. So this is something that Republicans should want, uh, and it, it shouldn't be a partisan solution. And so uh, um, a Democratic legislature that passes something like that could, could really you know, push through a structural reform. Now, another one I think that's good is um, uh, nonpartisan commissions on redistricting. This is another thing that that has been tried here and there, and 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 with mixed success. But the the bottom line is that something like a, a nonpartisan redistricting commission essentially takes gerrymandering as a weapon of political war off the table, right? And creates an institutional kind of structure in which both parties can at least try to agree on what constitutes a fair map, instead of both parties really, instead of the dominant party, uh, to go back to your conception of, of Republicans as fundamentally authoritarian, instead of the dominant party trying to waste the opposition's voters through power politics. So that's another good one that I really hope picks up some steam um, in, once Democrats gain background on the state level. You know, another uh, 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 one point I have, you know, is, as, as we think about this issue of of, uh, you know, practicing politics in a way that is effective, but it is also consonant with your values. And point being to what we talked about before, it's not just a matter of like, you know, oh, being principled versus not principled. At a certain point, if you practice politics a certain way, you don't get to what your principles are even trying to get to. Okay. So, and one, one way I think about this, and I, I, you, the points you made really just capture it, is that let, let's take something like AVR. If I think in practice, it will hell Democrats for all the reasons we think. But if what you are doing is soundly based on democratic principles, it's okay. <laughs> you know, if right. you are if you fair. are making Absolutely. it easier for every legitimate voter to vote, you're you're fine. 
you know, it's it, it's it's you know, because they one one of the things that has happened in recent years is that because of demographic changes and all sorts of things, basically more expansive voting rights is helping Democrats and. Uh, you know, more restrictive voting access is helping Republicans. And some people can say, well, okay, you know, everybody's just got a political interest and they're just pushing their own political interest. Well, if your political interest coincides with democratic values, you're the one who's right. And right, it's, I and think it, that's a really important and point. And it's, it's sure. not a I mean, both sidesism kind of thing. Yeah, right, no, absolutely. And this, this gets to the core of another aspect of all this asymmetry, right? Because here's a case in which both parties are trying to, to uh, you, you know, change the, the, the rules of political competition in a way that perhaps benefit themselves more than the other, but only one of them is actually trying to disenfranchise the opposition, right? So there's a, there's a basic asymmetry in, in, in the argument, right? So the argument against AVR might be something like, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't compel people to register, and or, or alternatively, people should have to take a big step towards voting to show that they're really being deliberative or something like that, right? right? Those, are the, those are the types of arguments you hear. That, that argument is, 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 is like not the same as when you and I say to a Republican, don't make it harder for us to vote. Right, it's, right, it's just right. A complete, there's a, there's, it's just a deep schism in, 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 in the conversation here. And, 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 I mean, we deal with this every day in, in all kinds of different ways, but I think it's absolutely true that, that there is a fundamental difference between saying, let's change the rules in a way that benefits me, perhaps, but also makes it easier for everyone to participate, which we should agree is a good thing. Right. And on the other side, saying, let's change the rules in, in a way that benefits my party, but also makes it harder for just your side to participate. I mean, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's just an obvious uh, asymmetry, and it's a very frustrating one, too. So la- last question. What was it like writing a book? Th- this is your first book, right? Or am I? Am I uh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, first one. So what was it like writing a book? Well, it was it was uh, it was interesting. I, I basically the only way I was able to do it while also doing a blog was to essentially say I'm going to try to hit a target daily, right? Mm-hmm. And and not even make the target too big. So right. I, I aimed for like a few hundred words a day, and of course there were plenty of days it didn't happen, and 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 but there were you know enough days that it did to to eventually make it come together, and then the editors essentially had to point a gun to my head at the very end and essentially say, if you don't get it in by this time, we can't, we can't get it out. So, how, so, so roughly how long did it take you to write? Like from I when you know. had the contract to like when it was done and just in, in, you know, actually being printed. I had the contract, I guess in the, in the late winter or early spring of 2017. And it kind of got, done in about maybe 14 months later. Right. But I did a whole bunch of reading kind of at the outset. So I, I, I guess I didn't really start writing. I guess there was maybe a year of writing. Um, it's not, you know, it's not too long, too. So, so you know, your listeners should, should be, you know, your listeners should know this is a, this is a quick read, guys. Well, I have a copy of it right here. It's called An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. It's from Greg Sargent, who is a, uh, I, 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 I don't know whether, to, are, do you still consider yourself a blogger at the Washington Post? 
Yeah, I guess so. You know, it's basically a blog. You know, uh, Jennifer Rubin and I are considered opinion bloggers. Right. You know, she was hired at the same time as, as, as I was and a little after and to counterbalance me and and now she's, you know, come over to our side right. in any respect. <laughs> well, listen, but, I, uh, I, I, I strongly recommend it to our readers. Um, Greg is just one of the smartest people about U.S. politics and has been, I know, thinking for a long time about these kind of core questions that mix policy and politics. I know these are questions that our readers and our podcast listeners think about a lot, too. Uh, so I, I, I definitely recommend it. And, and I assume it's, it's, you know, I have, I have the physical copy here. I assume it's on all the, um, on the platform of our Amazon overlords on digital copies and all that kind of stuff too, (laughs) right? Cool. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, man. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, uh, everybody, uh, check out the book and, uh, come on again soon sometime, Greg. Let me just give a quick word to your listeners about, uh, what you've meant to the, um, to the blogosphere over the years, because you probably have a lot of you know younger people who just joined up, and and uh, it, everybody should know that Josh really pioneered this form, which was a tremendous accomplishment and really something that kind of blazed a path for a lot of us who didn't really know what to do with ourselves and how to figure out how to express ourselves journalistically. And so we're still indebted to you for that, man. Thanks a lot for saying that, Greg. I really appreciate it. All right, now I'm 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 going. I'm switching back from the mawkish mode. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, everybody should go out and 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 get the book. And I I I I really appreciate your saying that. But now again, only so much, only so much uh, 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 nostalgia and 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 and, yeah. and 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 weepiness for me. Thanks, man. You should c- come on, come on, uh, come on again. We'll 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 talk about Anytime, what's going man. on. Would love to. You know, yep. In the normal craziness of the Trump era. Sounds great. Okay, so if you want to uh, go out and get Greg's book, again, it's called An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics by Greg Sargent. Greg, uh, as you as you could hear, uh, worked at TPM for a few years, basically like a decade ago, or maybe even a even a touch more than a, a decade ago. Uh, you, you, you lose track of time when you're getting those old. Yeah. So support the TPM family tree yeah, and pick yeah. up the book. I saw an emailer because, you know, we're having the TPM 18th anniversary and I saw an emailer talking about is the TPM diaspora. I don't like that. <laughs> it's a way to say it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I want to remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Uh, remember, you can get 20% off your first order of Grady's at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. So, all right, we will ba- be back uh, next week See with you next another time. edition of the Josh Marshall Podcast. Bye. Later. <laughs>